Amen. God is good, church. All the time. And that is never more true than this weekend. God is so good. So, church, um, as I stand here, um, I'm going to do my utmost best not to take up too much of your time. I don't know if this is just a color tradition or is it just something in our home, but we could only eat the Easter eggs on Sunday. We had to wait the whole weekend, and then you can only have your Easter eggs on Sunday. So, if you're still practicing, I'm going to release you early, and you can go and have, <laughs> you can go finish your Easter egg. So, so uh, yeah, so I did prepare, um, I prepared a message, and I spoke to Suresha yesterday, and I said, baby, like, I read one scripture, and I changed my whole message. Um, and that is just by the inspiration of God. I don't know why this happens, but uh, the message that I prepared, I'm going to last minute change. But we are in the book of Mark. We are in the book of Mark, and I have the pleasure of closing us off. And what a daunting task following my pastor and friend, Bevan, who just gave us nuggets this last two weeks. Because um, really, really blessed, really, really blessed by um, the first two weeks. You know, we're looking at the book of Mark from different angles. And uh, so what I want to do is just quickly summarize from, from my perspective. If you don't also have the... Uh, the Podbean app, go back and see where we had covered the Gospels from the four different angles. We had said that the Gospels are like cameras for the same movie from different angles. If you go back into the, into the Old Testament, into the book of Ezekiel, you see one of the living creatures with four faces. And one of the faces was the face of a man. The other was a face of an eagle. The other face of a lion. And the other was a face of an ox. Mark is... The, the synoptic gospel, which focuses as the gospel of the ox. And the reason, the reason this is, is because Mark starts, starts off showing Jesus' works. You find that the book of Matthew starts off with genealogies. And Adam begot so-and-so, and so-and-so begot so-and-so, and then David, and then and you get down all the way to the Son of God, Jesus, because he was written to the Jews, because he wanted to show that the Savior came from the lineage of David because it was prophesied in Isaiah 9 to come from the, from the roots of David. When you come to the book of Mark, you find that Mark covers a different, different aspect. He starts with the works, and then Jesus done this, and Bevan had mentioned this, and he says immediately he done this, immediately he went to another place, immediately he done this, talks about Jesus' works, the gospel of the ox, because an ox is a diligence worker. An ox is diligent. You see, that in, um, you see that also reflected in Luke 2. You see that Jesus was diligent even at the age of 12, preaching the gospel. And he says, where have you gone? This is the first time Jesus disobeys his parents, disobeys in a sense. They had gone a distance away and they'd come back and they came back to look for Jesus. And he says, what else should I be doing except the work of my father? He was diligent to do his work. Oxes are diligent to do their work. There's a reason why they are used to plow fields. Um, Christ intercedes for us. We see that in Hebrews 7, that he's forever interceding for us, standing in the cap. You know, uh, that's, they say that there's a man upstairs, and we do have a man who's a representative or a representation of us who intercedes for us, who speaks on our behalf, who's the lawyer in the courtroom of heaven. This is Christ. He is the ox because his love compels him to be diligent. Uh, ox is also dependable. It's trustworthy and reliable. You know, an ox doesn't have to be coerced into working like a donkey. You don't have to belt that, donk, that ox into working. Don't have to coerce it or push it or put a carrot in front of it. An ox is diligent to work. This is Christ. That he, he didn't have to be coerced. He was even diligent to the point of death. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we see that, you know, he's always working and interceding on our behalf. This is Christ. And we see that an ox is also a, a symbol of strength and a burden bearer. Uh, you know, when Jesus says that my yoke is easy and my burden is light, you know, uh, what is a yoke? It's not the yoke of an egg, but he's talking about the thing that they would put around the ox's neck to pull the plow. And the interesting fact is that an ox, uh, sorry, a yoke was made for two. They would often yoke two oxen together to pull the plow. And that's why he says, my yoke is easy because he's the one who does the heavy lifting for us. Come unto me, you are heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. Christ does the heavy lifting for us. A yoke is made with two head holes to put, uh, to put in. One ox would normally do the heavy lifting and the other would, would follow. That is what Christ does for us. He is the burden bearer for us. He took the sacrifice for sin for the entire world. Yeah. So... Um, you know, you also see later on in Mark, Mark 10, he says that whoever wants to first be, uh, uh, whoever wants to be first must be a slave to all. Yeah. 
For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. We see Christ as a servant, an ox. He's a servant. It is a gospel of the servant uh, perspective of Christ. And this is what Mark is elaborating on in the book of Mark. And it's so profound that you get this, this, this view. When you read it with that perspective, you can see Christ as the servant. He's coming to serve. Um, so um, we see an ox is also obedient. You know, we, uh, Romans 12 says that we should be obedient servants. Uh, we should sacrifice our lives, lay our lives as sacrifices before God, holy and acceptable before God. It's our call to, to service. Um, and, um, you know, the word that uh, service is used in, 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 in the New Testament is doulas. Doulas is literally slavery. You know, the, the woke people will say, oh, the, the Bible's promoting slavery. Yes, he is promoting slavery because we are slaves to Christ. Yeah. We are slaves to Christ. We are slaves. We are bound to him because he died. We will live. We need to understand this concept that we serve a kind master. Slavery in the Bible was not the slavery that you perceive it as. It is indentured slavery. You, you, you bound yourself to somebody because, they, you know, you better uh, like serving a kind master. This is the type of God that we serve. So we are bound to Christ. So... The picture that the book of Mark gives us is a book of sacrifice. It is a book reflecting Christ as a servant. It is a book reflecting him as an ox. That's why we get the picture of the four faces of the living creature. So when we come to this weekend, we had a brilliant sermon on, on Friday, which spoke about, uh, the, about the crucifixion of Christ. Now, uh, some of us may also religiously watch the Passion of the Christ or just reflect on the death of Christ every Easter because it is the focal point of Easter, right? Yeah. This is what we do. We read the, the Gospels and we look at the cross. But I want to come from it from a different perspective. And the reason why I changed the, 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 the perspective of the angle is because, firstly, I wanted to be an apologist for Christ because if there's something that is challenged today, if you go and look in modern mainstream media, if you go and look in even Christianity, the resurrection of Christ is one of the most persecuted doctrines of the Bible. Um, the death, the resurrection of Christ, if you look even at Islam, there's, there's parallels. Yes, we believe in Jesus, we believe in the same Jesus, but they do not believe in a crucified Jesus, they do not, yeah. not believe in a resurrected Jesus. He was taken up into heaven. The, we need to understand something. The reason why I've done this is not what proves the resurrection, but what does the resurrection prove? Because I wanted to be an apologist and come and make a state a case for Jesus here. I wanted to come and state a case with all of the evidences from Josephus to Herodotus to all of these historians and say, this is why we believe in Christ, because he rose. And here's all the evidence and here's all the proof. And here's the, but evidence is not enough to change the heart. What I realize, and I'll show you in the book of John, is evidence is not sufficient enough to change the hearts. I mean, you can show an atheist all of the proof in the world. You can show him even the points of conception of the world, the Big Bang, and they will not believe. It is hard to change the hearts of man, which is evidence. It is only scripture that changes the hearts of man. And when we understand that, we understand why Jesus pointed them to scripture. And you'll see that he says that at that point when they had seen the evidence, they remembered what he said. It is scripture that changes the hearts of man. So, this is the change that I had made mentally, spiritually, emotionally. So when we look at the resurrection, it's easy to understand the passion of the Christ because we can understand the suffering of being nailed to the cross, of being whipped on your back, of having your oxygen flow cut, of being hanging for, for six hours, of feeling the, the presence of God leaving. We can identify with this. It is understandable, the crucifixion of Christ. It is, it is understandable to, to identify with that component of, of, of his death. But what is difficult to identify with is his resurrection because yeah. we have no point of reference. All of the pathos goes to Friday's message. Yeah. But there's seldom little focus on Sunday's message. And what we need to understand is that resurrection, the resurrection component of this weekend is it's God's redemptive history. If you understand the narrative of the Bible from the first, I mean, there was peace for the first three chapters and you get man and then man sins. And from there on, Sin just reverberated throughout history that even the universe is groaning in anticipation for the returning of Christ because sin is such a heavyweight and such a burden on this earth that we have earthquakes, we have volcanoes, we have tsunamis, we have tornadoes, we have sin weighing down this world so heavily, waiting for the return of its Savior. That is how heavy it is. And the narrative of the Bible is God 
putting in place plans to redeem his people. So dying was one of it, yes, not taking away from the cross. But resurrection, without the resurrection, we have no salvation. We have no Christianity, we have no gospel. The resurrection is the crowning moment in God's redemption history narrative. It is a crowning moment, it is a jewel in his crown. It's a cornerstone of Christianity, without it the house falls down. It is a foundation of the gospel. If you understand, if you build a house without a foundation, we know you build your house on a rock. Resurrection is that foundation. It is a guarantee of heaven. Amen. And we understand that when we get to the story of Golgotha, when we get to the story of Calvary, we see three crosses. We see two possible outcomes of our eternity. And we see one everlasting choice. And that is the central point of God's narrative story. If you have to narrow it down to the center of everything, it comes down to this point. It comes down to three crosses. You find Christ in the middle. Christ interceding on our behalf, preaching seven messages from the cross. You find one thief on the one side, rejecting him and saying, oh, you're supposed to be God. Why don't you call angels? Why don't you get yourself down? And you have somebody saying, Lord, forgive me. And he said that today, when I'm in paradise, you will be with me. That you find that some people reject him, some people accept him. And then you find these two destinations is that we must understand, as Bevan had preached before, he says that some of us will be born twice and die once and some will be be born once and die twice. And for believers, we are the ones who are born once, who are born twice. We are born again, we are born naturally and we are born again. And we will die once because we pass the judgment seats of Christ. We pass that judgment seat. And for those who do not know him, those who do not believe in him, and I cannot sugarcoat it, the world will crucify me for this because, oh no, you cannot be so exclusive. Christianity is mutually exclusive. This is the narrow path. The reason why he said this is a narrow path, because it's so difficult to find him. He says that the path to destruction is broad and many find it, but the path to life is a narrow path and few that in, then that find it. And this is the gospel because sometimes people will go, I've seen interviews on CNN and they will put pastors on the spot and say, oh, you're telling us there's only one way. And some would be brave enough to say yes. There's only one way, and that is through the cross of Christ, because somebody had to appease God. Somebody had to appease the wrath of God. And, you know, this is the thing that really got me saved. You know, I've been saved for many years, but the thing that really got me saved is one day God hit me with this revelation in my heart. And I'm sitting there, and I realized at this one point that I'm going to be judged. And it hadn't hit me until that point that I'm going to face a holy, righteous, pure, perfect, eternal God. And I'm going to have to face him alone. And at that moment, it hit me like a ton of bricks that this, this is real, yeah. that I'm facing a God, but there is a way of escape because somebody took my punishment for me. Somebody paid the fine for me. He stood as propitiation for my crimson sin. He stood in my place, exchanged his righteousness for my unrighteousness. This is what Christ done for us. And this is why Jesus is such a big deal. If you do not understand this, You'll come to church week in and week out and not understand the importance and the, the weight of what he had done. Yeah. Why it was so difficult. Bevan expounded on this last week that it was such a weight for him when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time, not feeling the presence of God, not feeling, being separated. What a weight it was for him to go through this. If possible, let this cup pass from me. But he was obedient to the point of death. Christ was obedient to the point of death. So, um, we need to understand that the message of the Bible is that death is not the end of all existence. Yeah. It is not the end. The Bible says that this body is a tent. This is a temporary dwelling. This house is not my home. We are going home one day and He's prepared a place for us. Everyone who has ever lived will live forever. That is the truth. Whether you live to eternal shame or you live to eternal glory. But we will all live forever. We are eternal beings because we come from God. He is eternal. So, and, uh, so basically... The resurrection is a pledge or a promise to all that believe in him. Resurrection dominates the New Testament. It is, the, it is not just a feature of Christianity, not just a side note, not just the end credits of, of Jesus' life, but this is the crowning moment. This is the focal point of God's redemptive history. And this is why it's so important. It is a high point of the gospel. This is a crescendo. At the end of a song, you know when a song builds up and all of the instruments are hitting their high points, that is resurrection. That is the narrative of resurrection in, in, in our lives. And this is why it's so important, but it's difficult to identify with it because we cannot identify with being raised from the dead. It is a hard thing to swallow, which makes it even more, more difficult or more easier to understand the Bible narrative of when Christ had risen. 
Christ had risen and not everyone believed in him. So what I want us to do is I want us just to go and look at, at, at passage of scripture. So I'm going to do this a bit like a Bible study. Um, I don't think I can um, follow some preachers. I'm not a preacher, but what I do find joy in is joy in reading the scriptures. And, uh, you know, what is church without scripture reading? So I want us to spend a bit of time in the scripture. So if you have your Bible with me, please bear with me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take us through quite a few scripture and we're going to start in the book of John. So I know we're reading from the book of Mark, but we have parallel. We have parallels through the same story. So I want us to look at different angles. So I want us to look at the book of John. If you can turn to John 20 for me. John chapter 20. Now we're looking at the account of Jesus being resurrected post Calvary, post the cross. Now while you are turning there, we look at John 20 and we'll be looking from, let's say, chapter uh, verse 3. So we'll start at verse 3 and we'll just read a couple down. Now what I want us to look at here is when the Bible is written, I shared this in, in, in our Connect the other day, but the Bible is the most cross-referenced book that I could ever find. There is scripture from the beginning that talks to the end, that talks to the middle. There's, it is cross-referenced. It is so amazing that God knitted this narrative through that it's been tried and tested. People tried to distribute this book for centuries, for millennia, and still cannot discount and disreprove. There are some stories in the Bible where there's no valid proof and they are making eschatological, uh, uh, they're making digs in the moment in, in Mesopotamia and they are finding proof of societies that are mentioned in the Bible that they, that they said they, they don't exist. The Bible is yet to be disproven, yet to be disproven. When you read the Bible, read it with the eyes of God trying to show you something. When I read the Bible, I try and look at specific phrases, specific words. Why were certain things said in a certain way? Well, now, when I want us to look at, at this passage of Scripture, I want us to look at it from that perspective, with that lens. John is talking about this account. Christ had risen. The stone was rolled away by the angels. The Roman soldiers get addled for their lives. You get to this point now where we read from, uh, let's read from actually verse 1. It says, Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early. While, at, uh, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the, the other disciples whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and saw the other disciples and uh, were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter to the tomb. First, and he stopped down looking in, he saw the linen cloths laying there, and he said, uh, he did not go in. Then Simon came out following him and went into the tomb. He then saw the linen cloths lying, uh, lying there, and the handkerchief that was around his head was not lying uh, with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place in itself. Then the other disciples who came to the tomb first went in and saw that, and, and also he saw and believed. So I want us just to stop there for a second. When you're reading this account, now there's a passage of scripture I will maybe ask you to turn to, but it's, uh, it's in Matthew. The angel came to them, or came to Mary Magdalene and the other disciples and said, come and look at the place where he lay. We do not look at scripture just at face value. There's purpose in everything that is written. Firstly, when you look at the positioning of the angels, Christ was laid down. One angel at his head, one angel at his foot. Go and look at the Old Testament and see the mercy seat of Christ. Go and see the mercy seat. There was an angel at his head, an angel at his feet. Everything is purposeful in the Bible. There's nothing that is wasteful here because everything must be done according to Scripture. The, the angel came to them and said, come and look at the place where he lay. Angel didn't come and say, go and look at the stone rolled away. That is a miracle in itself. Come and look at the area. Come and look at the tomb. Come and look at other specific details. Specifically, the angel said, Come and look at the place where he lay. And this is what I want us to focus on. So we need to understand, right? First um, Corinthians 15 verse 14 says that if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty or in vain, and your faith is also empty. So we need to understand that this is pivotal. This is critical. This is central. This is the hinge of the door. This is really important. We just sang the song now, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. The scripture says, because he lives, we will also live. Because he conquered death, we will also conquer death. So 
Just two people I want us to focus on today is Mary and John. Mary, we saw last week of how our worship was, was smelt by Christ on the cross. He went to get tortured and, you know, God, uh, Jesus smelt the worship. You know, you, even the, the soldiers that, that had gambled for his garments had, had the, the sense of Mary's worship. We, uh, Bevan expounded on this last week. Jesus firstly appeared to Mary. I want us to look at that next. And then we have John. John was the first to believe. So those two people are really key. Everything in Scripture is purposeful. So when we see that, Mary was the first to see him. John was the first to believe. So when you look at John 20 verse 5, you see the word saw three times. Now, remember that the book of John, the account of John, was probably written about 50, 60 years after this event. So John had the, had the, the, the benefits of 2020 vision. Now, you can look back and actually recount. You know when you tell a story, you miss details. But if you had 50 years to recount it, and you could go back and look at specific details. So John gives us a detail here. He uses the word saw three times. Now, I want us to look at that in the original language. It is not the same word. It is three different connotations for the word see. So the first one is in uh, verse 5. And he. So also, if you just look previously, you see, uh, you see Peter and John having a race. And Peter is left behind. He is very unfit. So this is just a sign of his, his condition at the time. I mean, he had just denied Christ. You don't know what his condition was. Depression is like, hey, I don't believe this prize even here. Like, you know, just half-heartedly. But you can see where, where his heart is. But if you look at verse 5, it says that, and he, stooping down, looking in. So John is there first, right? The one who he loved. Saw the linen cloths lying there. The word there is blepe. The word blepe is where we get the word blep from. It is a glance. John came in, had a glance at the side and carried on with his business. That is the first word, right, that he had used. Now, um, the, second, the second use of this is that um, then Peter came following and went into the tomb, and he saw linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief had not been around his neck. That word, I don't know how to pronounce it, I can't read uh, this original text, but I think it's pronounced se'ereo. It means to observe something with sustained attention. So this is the second saw, second look. First one, glance. Second one, sustained attention. He's looking, his attention is drawn to the clothes. And then the third one, it says that, then, uh, verse eight, then the other disciple, who had come to the tomb first, went in also. He saw and believed. That word saw is to perceive with understanding or comprehension. Now what we're seeing here is a transition of believing. It is difficult to believe, but when he had saw, but what made him believe? And that's the thing that drew my attention here is that he saw with perception, he saw with understanding, he saw with comprehension, he understood what was happening finally and he looked at those clothes. Now, I had seen a couple of pictures on social media of Christ is risen. You see the tomb round over and then you see the clothes folded. And it's nice laundry that's folded. You know, it looks like somebody done the ironing, somebody done the washing. It's nicely rolled together like how the helper may do it and put in the corner and then you see the head wrapping. But when you actually look at what the custom was, it's a little different. The clothes would not have looked like that. When we understand what the custom was, and uh, John 19 verse 40 says, Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with spices, as was the custom of the Jews, is to bury. Now, the reason why we struggle as South Africans is because we don't understand what the customs were. Yeah. What was customary at the time? So, to get an idea, we don't even need to look at historians. We can go look at what the Bible says. And you can find this account of Lazarus. We know the story of Lazarus being bound in John 20, verse 44. Um, uh, sorry, that would not be John 24. You find... Um, you find Lazarus in earlier in John, so you find it in uh, 11. You don't have to turn there, I'll read it for you. But the custom was, now just look at this, right? And I also Googled um, Lazarus's tomb. You can go Google it and actually see what this looks like and get a picture of this. Um, so it says here, he cried us with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Um, and he who had died came out bound, hand, foot, with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with the cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Now, there's a spiritual application for this. Is that when we are born again, when we are born into new life, when we are raised from the dead in the sense of death to our sins, we are to leave our grave clothes. He says, loose him. Get rid of his grave clothes. Leave those grave clothes in the grave and come into newness of life. But we see Christ leaving his grave clothes in the grave, being born into the life of Christ, being born into the life of God. So, the spiritual connotation is that, but this was the custom of the Jews. 
And um, so I found this account uh, by Henry Latham. Henry Latham's life work was to, to, to exposit this, was to understand this. And Henry Latham, a 300-page book, but I'll summarize it here for you. It says, according to Jewish customs, after a hurried trip under Nicodemus and Joseph's care, remember he was buried in Joseph's tomb, from the borrowed womb to a borrowed tomb, Jesus' body was wrapped in linen bandage strips. First the hands were tied at the wrist, then each arm, then each leg, then the torso each tightly wrapped with spices, sprinkled into the cloth. As it is tightened around the body, a separate length of cloth was used to bind the head. Often the head bandage was over the top of the head and under the jaw to keep the mouth, from, uh, to keep the mouth closed. It was also customary to leave the face and neck unwrapped. This was done outside of the tomb. Then they would have carried him into the tomb on a stretcher made of woven strands. Once inside, they would have laid him, um, they would have laid him tightly wrapped and spiced um, down to the on the stone floor. There he was left, his face turned up and his head folded and his hands tied to his chest. The stone was rolled in place and later sealed. Jesus was more like a mummy than he was neatly folded clothes. We, we have this picture of just a robe. He was wrapped like a mummy, hands bound, legs bound, and you see the account of Lazarus. Now if you go and Google the tomb of Lazarus, go and see what Lazarus' tomb is. On the side of a mountain, deep down there was they built steps in there, but Lazarus immediately popped up. I don't know how this happened, but he popped up, hands bound, legs bound. I don't know if God threw him out of there or if he hopped up. <laughs> Potato race. Or I, I don't know what it was, but this was how Lazarus had come out. Lazarus had come out, hands bound, legs bound. He was wrapped like a mummy. And they said, lose him that he may go and live his life. This was what Jesus would look like. Now, this, now you need to understand this, that... There wasn't any cemeteries or mortuaries at the time, so we have the benefits of protracted wakes. We can go and bury somebody a month later, a week later, a frozen body. But in this time, even Muslims do this to this day, that you'll be buried the same day because of the climate, the, the, the rates of decay. So they had to bury you the same day. So you'd find the family washing the body. You'd find them wrapping the body. You'd find them spicing the body. This was all done in preparation for this mummification in, in essence. So what they would do, they would wrap the feet, they would wrap the hands, they would tie it to the chest, they would wrap the body up, they would wrap the head up, uh, close the mouth, and they would, as they were wrapping, they would add spice into it. This was just a part of the, the mummification process, but they would add spices within the wrappings. You think of some sort of powder or some sort of spice that we have now. This was the process. And then you get to the account in John 20, John first glances. Then he looks a little bit more intently. Then he looks with understanding. And he says that he was the first to believe. He looked and believed. And what did he believe? Because we don't understand the context of how it was set up. That when John comes in and he sees perfectly laid clothing on the floor. No spice disturbed. If Jesus had risen and wriggled his way out of there, it would have been a mess. No cloth undisturbed. There's a reason why the angels are posted there. So no one would disturb the crime scene. Because there's a purpose in why he said, come and look at where he lay. Because when you look at the scene and you understand Jewish custom, you would see that not a piece of cloth was disturbed. Not a spice was overturned. Nothing was out of place. No sign of disturbance. And that's what struck John's heart. He looked and he says, something, I, I cannot shake this feeling. I cannot shake this feeling. That's why I said evidence is not enough. Evidence is not enough to make you believe. The evidence took them there. But then if you go and look further on, he says, and at that point when he believed, he says that then he understood what Jesus had said. Yeah. He remembered scripture. Scripture changed his heart to say that I must die and I must raise on the third day. And this is what changed John's heart so much that he was the first to believe. He first sprints, out sprinted Mark. He got there because John loved Christ. You find Mary weeping. And it's not that weeping of like just sitting there and, and sobbing in her eyes. It says she was wailing. She was wailing. She loved Jesus so much. She sat at the tomb wailing and says, where's his body? I don't believe somebody took him away from here. But this is what changed John's heart. It was this particular account. It was this moment. This particular moment. So when we understand... Um, why John believed. And I want us just to look at something as well, is that uh, if you go and look at the, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians 15, it details this so beautifully, but there's a lot of lessons in there, but I just want to cover one or two. Um, so basically, uh, the first lesson there is that uh, the, gospel of, um, the gospel centers around Christ's work on the cross, which is the unfolding of Scripture, as it said it would. I want us to also look at um, 1 Corinthians 15, 9 to, 9 to 11. Uh, sorry, not 9 to 11, uh, but 5 to 8. 
Jesus was seen by many witnesses, right? You, you find that uh, when Jesus had went, you know, uh, he had went and he had saw Mary, he had saw John, he had saw all these different people. But at one time he was seen by 500 witnesses. And something that struck me is that, is it possible that only 500 people were saved during Christ's ministry on earth? Is it possible that only five, 500 people were moved for the sinner's prayer, come up and take the prayer of salvation, were discipled, only 500 people? We're talking about Jesus here. When I talk about the path being narrow to salvation, that even Jesus, when he spoke in the wilderness and he says, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, and they say, this is a hard thing, we can't believe this thing. This is cannibalism. And then 120 disciples turned from him and he said to his disciples, he says, do you also want to go? And they say, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. 12 out of 120, that's 10%. That is a big number. So 500 we find. Would it not benefit Christ to go and visit everybody that he's, he's, he's touched in his ministry? Anybody, Zacchaeus and you know, all of his different people. The, uh, Mary Magdalene was, was uh, oppressed by demons and all of his different people. 500 people at one time. I don't know. Maybe stand to be corrected. But Jesus was affirmed by eyewitnesses. This is why we can also believe that, he, that his resurrection was true. We have eyewitnesses. So um, I just want us to look very quickly then at, um, at the life of Mary Magdalene. I want us to look very quickly on why Mary Magdalene. There's a reason why scripture gives us this account. Um, it says that wherever the gospel is preached, you will also be mentioned. Mary Magdalene is immortalized because of her sacrifice, because of her worship, because of her love for Christ. She loved this man so deeply. She loved Christ so deeply, she gave a year's salary. Can you imagine, what do we earn per year? Go and do the calculations. Buy something expensive and waste it on one act. It seems wasteful as Judas saw, but this was the love that this woman had for Christ. Why did she get the benefits of the blessing of seeing him first? Um, so... We just need to understand that also 89 chapters are dedicated to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. You know, uh, you see these videos on, on social media sometimes when a soldier comes home and sometimes they'll bring the dog to the airport and the dog just goes haywire. Or when the soldier comes and surprises his wife at school or his child uh, at school or whatever it may be. You know, it's, it's also like if you were away for a long time, who's the first person that you go and see? Who was the first person? And then that gives you an, an indication to Christ's heart for this woman that the first person that he went to go and see was Mary Magdalene. This is how much he valued her sacrifice. He goes to look for her specifically. So I looked at it in, in, in five groups of believers that, uh, and I'm only going to touch on one of them, five group of believers that Christ came to see. He came to see the defiled. And we look at that in Mary Magdalene. Those who are deeply marked by sin. He also came to see the depressed. You go and look at... Um, those who are down after the after the uh, the cross, you find them not even wanting to, to 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 meet together. Thomas even missed the first service. You find them not wanting to meet. You find the doubters, doubting Thomas or unbelieving Thomas. Those deserters, those who deserted him at the cross, and the deniers, those who denied him as well. So we're looking at the defiled, and we find that Mary, uh, he appeared to Mary right in John twenty. We just read that Jesus was moved by compassion to go and to go and meet with Mary, um, and it's a if. It, this does nothing but spur you on to understand that Christ will never overlook your devotion. Those who are waking up at 5 a.m. to pray, those who are coming to church diligently yeah. every week, those who are interceding for others, those who are giving to the poor when you don't even have yourself. And when you see that God sees that heart, and you know, if you're making yourself short so that others may have, if you give up your life so that others may benefit, when you are doing the work of God, He does not overlook it. God has, doesn't have a short memory. Only short memory when it comes to, to forgiving sin. But he will not overlook your devotion. And this is the example we get with Mary Magdalene. So John 20 verse 12, we, told you, we spoke about the angels and the mercy seats. Um, but also, it's really interesting that when he appeared to them, nobody recognized him. You find that weird, right? Did he block their understanding or was it just something else? And I believe it's that because you have this marred Christ, this Broken, bruised, battered, beaten up Christ, who I believe still looks like that today and even to the point of eternity. Because he says you are slain from the foundation of the earth. So we find that we will always see the battered and bruised scars, the nails, scarred hands, the, the striped back. We will always see this as a constant reminder of what he done for us throughout eternity. That is my personal belief, but I believe that's why when they looked at him, they didn't recognize him because someone said, hey, maybe you're the gardener, I don't know. Uh, Mary said that to him. So 
they didn't recognize him, right, because he looked like the lamb that was slain or massacred. You find that in Revelation. Um, so uh, it reminds me of a story of this little girl whose mother had a burnt-up face. Mother's face was horribly disfigured. Every day she would take them to take the child to school, and she's like, hey, mommy, drop me around the corner. You know, your friends are laughing at me. Mother felt bad, but never mind, dropped her around the corner every day until somebody said, you know why your mother's face is disfigured? Because the house was burning when you were a baby. She ran in to save you and got burnt terribly. This child never again looked at the mother the same. Mommy, you can drop me wherever you like because she understood the love, the compassion that it took. So the, 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 the scars just remind me of that, that Christ loved us so much that he bears those scars for eternity. He bears those scars for eternity. He will forever be marred so that we will never forget what he, what he done for us. Now, we understand that Mary had a dark and terrible past, right? We see the, the accounts in the Gospels in, in, in Mark 16, where she's filled with demons. Yes, she has seven demons. Now, if you go and look at most of the stories, you'll find one demon. You know, this, this demon is making them break chains, and this demon is doing that and that. And you do find one account of, of Legion, but this woman had seven demons in her. She had a horrible, terrible, terrible past. And I believe the Bible is intentionally silent on her, what she done. You know, some people say she was a prostitute. You know, there's, there's no distinct evidence for, for what, what, she, what she had done. But I believe the Bible is intentionally silent because we can transfigure ourselves into the, the character of Mary because it could be what you've done. It could be that gambling habits. It could be that cheating. It could be that thing that you're holding so dear. It could be that porn habits. It could be that, that bitter heart for not unforgiveness. It could be whatever you are doing in your life. Could be Mary Magdalene. And that is why it's intentionally silent. She was the chief of sinners, just like we are. And I believe it's intended to comfort those penitent believers after having run into the great excesses of sin. I don't know if it's just me, but gone so deep into sin, where you don't know who you are, where you think even can God forgive me. I don't know if it's just me, maybe it is, but I'll, I'll, I'll pick up my hand. But God sees us as we are, not as we were. Yeah. He says, as far as the east is from the west, how far is that? One nails God's hand to the next. That is the love of God, that he does not see us as we are. But as he, does, he only sees us as we are, not as we were. And no matter how far we've fallen, if this is a message, if you take nothing else but take this encouragement, no matter how far you've gone from God, you could have taken a thousand steps back. You could be in the greatest stands of sin. You could be doing the worst kind of things, your thought process, your heart, your mindset, the things that you're doing in the dark. It does not matter. No matter how far you are, there's no sin too great for God. Because on the cross, he died for all. He died for all. He died for the pedophile. God bless you. He died for the rapist. God bless you. He died. I, I remember a story of the murder of Sharon Tate. There was, um, there was uh, this cult in, I think, the 60s or 70s. And they lived in a farm. And then they had uh, murdered this actress, Sharon Tate. She was like a famous actress from the 60s. Uh, Tarantino made a movie about it. And the actual hitman, the one who had been doing the killings, he was in jail. And I saw this thing that blessed my heart so greatly that he started a prison ministry. Somebody witnessed to him. He was born again and he's witnessing and they said we, we want to release you on good behavior, the things that you've been doing. He says, I deserve to be um, staying here until the day I die. Penitence. He believed that he deserved his punishment and I'm staying here and if I can win one more soul for Christ, I'm going to do it. That is the love of God. No matter how far you've gone, we've heard stories of the worst sinners, the worst drug dealers, the worst murderers, no matter how far you've gone. And that is the, the story of Mary Magdalene. This is how far somebody has gone, but that's why she loved him so much. Because when you understand what he saved you from, yeah. you understand. When he understands what he saved me from, the mindset, the heart, unforgiveness, the, the, the filth that is in my life, the filth that is in my heart, you cannot... You cannot trample his blood underfoot again. And that's what made the heart Mary Magdalene was. She spent a year's wages on, on blessing him. So no matter how great our sin, the blood of Jesus provides forgiveness for us. So, um, so you know, it just uh, Mary Magdalene should make us stand back and glorify God, who makes such masterpieces of his grace from such formerly defiled souls like us. It's such a blessing. So that is the story of Mary Magdalene. And... Um, so just in closing, and I'm going to close, I'm not going to go too, too much further. Um, when we understand, uh, I said earlier, the question that I changed was not what proves the resurrection true, because I could go through evidence. I could sit here all day and go through biblical evidence and say it's because of this and this and this. It might not change your heart. But what does the resurrection prove? 
what does the resurrection prove? And I think the main truth that I'm going to take out from here is that it proves the truthfulness of God. Yeah. Proves the truthfulness of God. The Word of God says that God is not a liar. He is not the Son of Man that He should repent. He is not a liar. God cannot lie. Even if He said the sky is green, it will become green. God is not a man that He should lie. It proves the truthfulness of the Word of God. When you say, John 17, 17, sanctify us with your truth. Your word is truth. This is truth. You can try and test something only so many times until you can disprove it. And that if the resurrection didn't happen, we can might as well throw this book in the bin. Yeah. We can throw this book in the bin because if the, if the resurrection didn't happen, the rest is nullified. Because no resurrection, no gospel. No gospel, no salvation. As simple as that. The resurrection hinges on everything we believe. The cornerstone without it. We have nothing. Our faith is useless. Our faith is worthless. Because He lives, we live. Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because I know He holds the future. The song we sang, we understand the truthfulness of the Word of God. So when you look at the book of Acts, and I'm going to look there very quickly. Book of Acts says, Acts 2. Acts 2, we have an account and it's Acts 2, 25. It says, For David says concerning him, quoting now Psalm 16. Psalm 16 is a messianic psalm. A messianic psalm is basically a prophecy of Christ. And we can go through the multitude of prophecies of Christ. But it says that, I foresaw the Lord always before, uh, before my face. He is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will uh, rest in hope. For you will not leave your, my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption or decay. Amen. This is a prophecy. Now, some would say David's talking about himself. He's talking about himself in the first person. But the, the, the speaker goes on to say that, you know, David went on to see decay. David saw himself in, 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 in Sheol, in Hades. So it's not talking about him. It says that you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. This is the promise that God had given him. He says that no bone will be broken. This is prophecies. No bone is broken. Normally with crucifixion, you take in too long. They cup you at the knees. You suffocate. We need to hurry this along now. No bone is broken. They pierced his side, which is another prophecy. Psalm 22. My Lord, my Lord, why have you forsaken me? Word for word, what Jesus said on the cross. You go and look at scripture upon scripture about him talking about himself dying. And he says you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, of which we are all witnesses. They were all witnesses. So it speaks of the truthfulness of God. The promise of the Old Testament is a risen Savior. That is what it's basically saying. You find prophets upon prophets upon prophets upon prophets talking about the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We understand the word to be true. You know, um, other scripture says that the only way that you can, I'm paraphrasing, it says the only way that you can know if something is true is if it was foretold and it came true. You test something like that. If somebody, a prophet says that on the 5th of May, you're going to meet that young man, blah, 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 blah. And if it happens, you believe the prophet to be true. So when the prophets are saying this, not once, not twice, hundreds of times, there's over 300 prophecies of Christ that he fulfilled. Still a few more to, to be fulfilled. How do you disrepute that? How do you disrepute it? So Acts 26 um, says the following. Um, Acts 26, so we look at Acts 26, 22, says the following. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both small and great, saying nothing, saying no other things that those which prophets, the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer that he would be the first to rise of the dead and would proclaim the light of the Jewish people and the Gentiles. The Old Testament spoke of his death and resurrection. That proves that scripture can be trusted and is true. John 19 says, said that they believed the scripture because of the resurrection. Luke 23 says, and I just want us to look there very quickly. Um, one of the last scriptures I'll take you to, but I think very important. Luke 23, 25. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. 
ought not the Christ have suffered these things and uh, to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all scripture and all things concerning himself. Speaking about the death, burial and resurrection. It was spoken and it came true. The resurrection proves the truthfulness of scripture prophecies that the Messiah would die and rise again. And this is what we stand on today. This is the cornerstone. Christ is our firm foundation, the rock on which we stand. There is no other name but the name of Jesus. And if he had not risen, we were wasting our time coming to church on Sunday. We are wasting our time. We could be sleeping in and not rising on the third day. We could be enjoying ourselves at home. But we come in service to Christ. We lay our lives as living sacrifice. Christ does not overlook your devotion. He does not look your, overlook your love for him. What you do is seen and recorded. It says that the books were open in Revelation. The books. And every thought, deed, intent, will everything that we do, but also we be rewarded according to our deeds. So everything that you do has been recorded. You build yourself treasures where no moth and rust can get to. And this is the promise. So we have a promise of a life beyond this. I don't know about you guys, but this is not my best life now. Some author says, live your best life now. I, I don't want to live it now. My back is sore. <laughs> I, need, I need something new. I need some, I need a change. And I don't know that all the people are giving amens <laughs> because you know what I'm talking about. This body is decaying slowly. We are born dying. And we, you might be young now and you might be fit and feeling fine, but your body is passing away. The earth, this, this, this temple is passing away, but we have a promise of eternal life. This is the guarantee, the guarantee. You know, when they, uh, I spoke to somebody about a warranty that I bought, I bought something of the, by the Pakistani and like Ace. So three, three months warranty is like, no, bye, you know, hey, no three months, only one month. It's like what you said last time and the thing is, now I can't trust your word, now I'm no more buying by you, but when it comes to this, it's not buy's word, this is God's word. This warranty, this guarantee is set in stone, you can trust in the word of God. So family, in closing... We can understand and go and read the accounts for yourself. I was just blown away. The more I kept reading, the more I wanted to preach a feature-length sermon, Lord of the Rings. But I don't want to. I don't want to keep you guys. We promised Easter eggs for some people. So um, just looking at Romans 6, 8, it says that now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We live our lives now with him, but also one day when this body is gone, uh, this body is a tent. James says that it's like a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. This is the nature of life. It is like a vapor, it is like a flower. I buy my wife flowers, a couple days later they're withering away. This is life. You look now, even Joseph, uh, with Jacob in his last days, you look back and he was 176 and he says, hey, short and, and troublesome have been my days. I'm like, 176, bro, like, that's a long life. You know, you lived, but when you look back, life is short. Looking forward, it seems long. This life, live it for God. Live it for God because you stand with surety. Even on your deathbed, you will stand with the surety that I'm going now to be with my Savior. If I, God forbid, pass away, if any one of us, God forbid, pass away, we're not mourning. We know that we're going literally to a better place. You know, you go to drug dealers and murderers' funerals. He's in a better place. Yeah. Hey, uh, I'm not too sure. But Galatians 2.20 says that I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ and the life I live in the flesh, I live in faith in him who died for me. This is the firm foundation we stand on. This is my scripture. I don't know, get your own, but this one, yeah, I hold on dearly. Because I am crucified with him. If we are buried with him, we will raise with him. If we live with him, he will live with us. He will not deny us. This is the, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you. If you accept me or you proclaim me before men, I will proclaim you before my Father. We have one mediator, the God, man, Jesus Christ, who stands as mediator before God, who stands and speaks on our behalf, who's our lawyer, our advocate. This is the promise that Christ has given us. His promises are true, and yes, we can stand firm on them. Because why? If you go and look at where they were fulfilled, we spoke about Daniel and the accuracy. You spoke about all of the prophecies of the Old Testament. Go and look at them fulfilled. Historians talk about it. You can go look at history books. You can see it fulfilled. Why would we not trust this? I don't know what else. I don't know. The Pakistani's warranty is not good enough. You can have a 10-year warranty. A guarantee is not good enough. This is eternal warranty. Eternal guarantee. So, family, I encourage you to understand what Christ done on the cross for us. Understand what, the, what lengths he went through for us. 
and that we have surety because it says that he was the first fruits, first picked fruits of the tree, and he led those captivity captive. He led Moses and David and all of those, those patriarchs out of Sheol into the bosom of Abraham. And you find that, that the second coming, all the dead in Christ will rise. Read Second Thessalonians, First Thessalonians. You will see that the dead in Christ will rise from the sea, gave up their dead. And then you find after the tribulation, you find the last, the great multitude coming to him. But Christ, he's been planning this for a long time. You watch these action movies where they plan the heist for 20 years and then they pull it off. God's been planning this for thousands. He's been planning this in time immemorial. This plan of salvation. This is planned to perfection. And every word will be fulfilled. Christ will come back. Amen. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. And this is not my opinion. People can hate me for this. You can just, I'm just saying what the word of God says. This is not what I, it's not Grenville's word. This is the word of God. He will come back and he will judge. It is appointed for man to die once. And after death comes judgment. So let us prepare our hearts and don't just let it be a conviction for now but if God's spoken to you today and you go and you challenge yourself you go and question yourself the Bible says if you judge yourself you won't need to be judged go and judge yourself see what areas need to change in your life if you don't know Christ come to know him there's no greater joy in this life than knowing him there's no greater joy I promise you I've tried things out there and I've been to all of the places and I've done all of the things and it filled me for a time but I have joy and the difference with happiness and joy, happiness is temporary. This joy is joy unspeakable. When you wake up, even when things are crashing, when you wake up and the economy is crashing, when I see the US dollar now, they're talking about it crashing and the rest is going to follow. When all of this happens, what do we stand on? What do we stand on when our savings are worth nothing? When the Kruger Rand is worth nothing? What do we stand on? We stand on this firm foundation and no matter how the seas tumble against us, no matter how the winds blow, no matter how the storms come, we stand on something that is not based on economy and shaking like this. We stand on the truthfulness of words. God's scripture is inherent. It is disreputed. Go and look at how they tried to, to, to cancel this book. The very man who tried to break this Bible, they turned his house into a printing press for the Bible. This is what God does. God has a sense of humor. So I encourage you this morning um, to just appreciate what he's done for us. He's done such great things for us. Because he lives, we can face tomorrow. Amen. So I'm going to pray for us and then I'm, I'm